Does your organization's retirement plan reflect your faith values? With 25 years of experience in biblically responsible investing, LightPoint Portfolios offers turnkey, faith-based, qualified retirement plans for businesses, nonprofits, and churches. LightPoint Portfolios seeks out family and faith-friendly investments for 401k and 403b plans, integrating faith values and fiduciary duty. Learn more at lightpointportfolios.com. Hi, thanks for joining us today for MoneyWise. I'm Rob West. We all know the cost of living has risen this year, but I have a question for you. Do you know what your personal cost of living is? Just ahead, I'll explain how to calculate it and why that's important. Then we'll open the phones for your questions on any financial topic. Here's the number, 800-525-7000. You can go ahead and call right now, 800-525-7000. This is MoneyWise, biblical wisdom for your financial journey. Every other week or so, we devote the opening segment of our Monday program to talking about the financial basics. Our framework for those discussions consists of the five things you can do with money. You can earn it, live on it, give it away, owe it to someone, or grow it for the future by saving and investing. Just about anything related to money will fall into one of those five categories. Earn, live, give, owe, and grow. Uh, Today, we're focusing on using money to live on. That is the money you need for your monthly expenses, plus a few other expenses that only come due from time to time. Now, because of inflation, I suspect your expenses are higher today than they were a year ago. Uh, We've all paid higher prices at the gas pump, in the grocery store, and in lots of other places. The federal government issues a report each month on the overall cost of living. And while that report is helpful in some ways, it doesn't tell you anything about you and your household. What you really need to know is your personal cost of living. That is, how much does it cost each month to put food on your table, keep a roof over your head, and pay other expenses. Knowing your personal cost of living can help you construct a realistic spending plan or budget. Now, when I say realistic, I mean one that matches the reality of your cost of living and still has some cushion built in for other important financial obligations. You don't need fancy software to calculate your cost of living. You can do this with pencil and paper. First, write down your monthly giving. For a Christian, giving should be a priority, so make that first on your list. Next, put down how much you're saving each month for general emergencies. So carve those two out up front, giving and savings. Now, start a separate column for your various living expenses. Begin by listing all your fixed expenses. That would typically include things such as your mortgage or rent payment, a car payment if you have one, and any bill bills or debts for which you pay the same amount each month. For bills with variable amounts each month, you'll need to calculate monthly averages. To do that, get the last 12 months worth of those bills. For each account, calculate the total yearly cost, then divide by 12 to get a monthly average. Then list those monthly averages in the same column with the fixed expenses that you've already written down. You'll also need to figure out and write down your monthly average for transportation costs, including gas and, if applicable, subway or bus fares. 
Next, take into account things that only occur every so often, such as car repairs and household repairs. Look back over the past year and figure out a monthly average with those items, too. For example, if you had a car repair this year that was $1,200, that works out to an average of $100 a month. Also, uh, think about regular bills that come due only once or twice a year, such as property taxes and insurance payments. Calculate monthly averages for those, too, and add those averages to your list. And there's one more thing to include. You need to take account of your gift giving. Total up what you spend on gifts over a year, including Christmas, and divide it by 12 for a monthly average. Now, Here's the easy part. Simply add up all your fixed expenses and the various monthly averages for variable expenses. The total is an estimate of your average cost of living. Now, because it's an average, the amount won't match your actual spending in any given month, but it'll give you a good ballpark idea of your monthly needs. Next, do one more thing. Take that monthly cost of living figure and add in the giving and savings amounts you listed earlier. If that total exceeds what you're bringing in, you know you need to cut expenses somewhere because your outgo is exceeding your income. With a new year just around the corner, this is a great time to go through this little exercise of figuring out your cost of living so that you can adjust your budget accordingly for 2023. Sure, doing the calculations will require a little effort, but what you learn about your personal cost of living will help you make the most of what you have in the year ahead. In a moment, we'll go to the phones for your questions about anything of a financial nature. Here again is our number, 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. Thanks for being with us today for Money Wise. We'll be right back. At Money Wise, we are on a mission to educate, equip, and connect you and many others with the powerful financial answers found in God's Word through national radio programs, our app, website, and other resources. If you've benefited from MoneyWise and believe in this mission, would you consider becoming a monthly MoneyWise patron? Check out all the benefits of a MoneyWise patron's membership at moneywise.org and click Give on the homepage. If you have money in a retirement account or just a general investing account, you know the stock market can sometimes be like a roller coaster. But it is possible to enjoy both profit and peace of mind in investing, no matter what's happening in the market. You can see a short video webinar on that topic at soundmindinvesting.org. Since 1990, Sound Mind Investing has sought to offer financial wisdom for living well. soundmindinvesting.org. Well, we're so glad to have you back with us today on MoneyWise. I'm Rob West, and we're looking forward to taking your calls and questions. Here's the number, 800-525-7000 with lines open. Cleveland, David, you're next on the program. Go ahead, sir. Hi, Rob. Thank you. I'd like to know your opinion on the wisdom of taking Social Security at early age as opposed to full retirement age. I've listened to your program a lot, never really heard you address that your opinion yeah well uh tell me how long you're going to live david no i'm just kidding uh that, <laughs> that <laughs> good one 
That really is the key question, and that's what makes it tough. Here, here's the reality. You know, if you start taking Social Security early, so at age 62, your monthly benefit will be permanently reduced by about 32%. Uh, however, you might receive, let's say, for the average benefit check, $60,000 or so in benefits by the time you reach uh, full retirement age. Uh, if you wait until then to receive benefits, you're essentially behind by that amount you would have collected. Uh, and it's estimated that it'll take 11 years and seven months to recoup that that you've given up by not taking it early. So you'd have to live to, again, on average, 78 or so years old to break even. Now, after that, though, you'd be ahead by, let's say, $500 a month for the rest of your life. Again, using the average benefit check and that 32% that you would be able to, uh, you know, realize by not taking it early. So it really does come down to, you know, if the Lord comes back, it doesn't really matter. But if he doesn't and you're in good health and, you know, you, uh, you know, want to wait until full retirement age and you live these roughly 12 years beyond full retirement age, which the average American these days does, then, you know, for the rest of your life, you'd enjoy that higher benefit check. Does that make sense? It does. Um, the downside for me of not drawing early, and I'm just a few months out from retiring, just a little over 62 years old. The downside of waiting is the, is the drawdown, the higher drawdown on my retirement accounts while I'm waiting for that full retirement to kick in. Yes. So then I lose that earn. I, the more I draw down, obviously, the more earning power my investments lose quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. However, I think you're not going to get a guaranteed 8% in the market, number one. And number two, typically when you get to that point, your uh, allocation of your investments gets somewhat more conservative. So you're probably not, you know, even if the market's performing really well and you would have gotten 8% plus in the market, you're probably not realizing the full benefit of that because you've got a larger allocation toward fixed income. So uh, given the option of, you know, taking Taking a little bit more from the 401k between 62 and full retirement age, um, only to get that guaranteed increase of 8% a year on the Social Security. Generally, it comes out better to go ahead and take the uh, the benefit increase because it's guaranteed and it's not in the market. You're obviously at risk, and because of a more conservative, typical allocation, you probably you know aren't even in a good market going to come anywhere close to 8% a year. Does that make sense? It does, but just to kind of push back a little bit, then the the eight percent that I'm going to earn or increase each year is eight percent of the Social Security payment, Correct. right? So, but if I would take in order to, if I was to bypass taking any of that early, then I'm taking whatever I'm going to live on it in in its entirety out of my stock. I'm out of my investment portfolio, that's a larger chunk. Is, is that, am Probab I thinking about Probably this? not, because you're just going to draw out the difference between what you would have been receiving in Social Security um, each month and what you need to live on. So, um, and the eight, so the, the value of that 401k is the value of a future income stream. And so the the benefit of the 8% higher monthly check for life is it's equivalent 
to the whole portfolio that would have created the 8% uh, or the, uh, the monthly income stream for life. It's equivalent on increasing the whole portfolio by 8% because in order to get to that monthly check that's 8% higher, the whole thing would have had to have been that much bigger. Does that make sense? And so by increasing the income stream by 8%, it's equivalent to the same thing in the 401k. Okay. All right. I'm going to, I'll give that some thought. So yeah, yeah. Think about that. It's really the, the, the value of the future income stream and the assets to generate eight, uh, the monthly payout, uh, you know, let's say it's $500 a month extra. So the amount you would need to have in the portfolio to get an extra $500 a month is much bigger than, you know, just that monthly amount. Um, so th- I think that's what you're ultimately solving for is what's the growth in the portfolio that I would need to realize in order to get the, the extra $500 a month. And that's much more significant. Okay. No, that's helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome, David. Thanks for calling. Uh, We've got two lines open, 800-525-7000. Belinda's in Chicago. You're next on the program. Go ahead. Hi. um, I have a question and some concerns. I filed bankruptcy a couple of years ago. I reached the discharge date where I can actually purchase my home. I have money saved for down payment. My credit score is 760 now, and I have 30000 in credit card debt that I'm not using. So I want to know what can I do to not put myself at risk again to, you know, not be able to purchase when the time comes. Sure. Tell me exactly what you would be looking, you'd be looking for the credit. Is that what you're thinking about? Well, actually, yeah, because I'm going to need the credit in order to actually obtain the mortgage. So, you know, with the inflation and nobody knows where that's going to go. Yes, very good. Well, I think the key is you just want to, you know, try not to borrow for anything, uh, you know, and try to pay down the debt as much as you can. If you were to buy a home, you want to save 20% for the down payment, which would avoid the private mortgage insurance, ensure that you have enough equity in the home, but really take a close look at your budget. Uh, and make sure that it fits well within your income. And a good rule of thumb for that principal interest taxes and insurance payment would be 25% of your take-home pay. And as long as you really keep that uh, mortgage payment within that 25%, uh, then you should be in a good position to make sure you can cover everything else out of the remaining income, which is where that guideline is not a hard and fast rule, but just that, a guideline can help you make sure you don't get overextended putting you back into his position uh, like you were in before. Does that make sense? Right. It does because I don't have any debt now. I don't, all I have is my monthly rent payment. That's all of my car insurance. That's all I have. You know, I'm able to pay those and have, you know, a surplus left over. So it's just like, I guess, like you said, just keep an eye on my budget and make sure I don't go out and do anything extreme or crazy and just kind of like let it stay like it is basically because I think it's been that's working right. so far, right? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you certainly have gotten your financial house in order. As long as you really have a, a good plan, you have an emergency fund to fall back on, which of three to six months expenses, uh, you know, you don't uh, presume upon the future with your borrowing and you try to operate as much as you can on a cash basis. And then, you know, as you build up that surplus, starting with the emergency fund and then long 
longer-term savings for things like cars and other things as you need them. Uh, you know, I think that's really the key, Belinda, uh, to moving forward and making sure you don't ever put yourself in a really difficult spot again. So listen, all the best to you. I'd love for you to stay on the line. I want to send you a copy of Howard Dayton's book, Your Money Counts, that I think will be an encouragement for you as uh, you think about God's way of handling money. We appreciate your call today. Much more to come right around the corner on MoneyWise, including your questions. Do you ever feel stressed or anxious about money? If so, that's normal. But you don't have to accept that. You can find peace of mind and financial security. Learn how with the 31-day devotional, Money Seeking God's Wisdom. You'll find powerful scripture and practical exercises for spiritual and financial growth. You can request your copy with a gift of any amount. Would you consider a monthly or one-time gift by December 31st? Just visit moneywise.org give. Investing is more than just returns. It's an expression of who you are and what you value. Does the way you invest your money reflect your identity as a Christian? At Eventide, we design investments for performance and a better world, so you can invest with a confidence to reach your financial goals while remaining true to your Christian values and commitments. We call this investing that makes the world rejoice. More is available at investeventide.com. That's investeventide.com. Welcome to MoneyWise. I'm Rob West, your host, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you as we take your calls and questions from all across the country. 800-525-7000 is the number to call. Uh, to Pittsburgh, Glenn, thank you for calling. Go right ahead. One of my nurse coworkers has a 17-year-old living at home that's going to start college. I think their combined household income is going to preclude them from like the major Pell Grants and whatnot financial aid. So I thought perhaps a better approach would be go for some of the smaller scholarships that go overlooked and that perhaps if they could get a few of them, they may get some, you know, reasonable amount of help. Does that sound like a sound plan? And if so, do you have a comprehensive list of a website has comprehensive list of the scholarships? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to help with that. And I think you're right. I think if they don't qualify for need-based aid, then, you know, there are a host of scholarships out there. We're kind of in the throes of this right now. My oldest is a senior and he does really well at school and uh, he's looking to get a full ride uh, to, to college, but he's going to in part do that through scholarships. Well, the other night he was uh, provided a list by his, uh, uh, the counseling office at the high school of maybe 30 different uh, scholarships. Uh, portals, and he went in there and just in one evening applied for about $40,000 in scholarships, just sitting there at his desk uh, applying away for everything he could find. And his goal is to get that up to 100000 on top of the uh, merit-based uh, grants and scholarships that he's going to receive. So, you know, I think it's really a matter of the willingness to put the effort in and the time that you put in uh, to using multiple scholarship search engines, starting well ahead of the school year, not ignoring the small awards because many small scholarships add up fast. I think uh, you know, to the extent the scholarship requires an essay, and many of them do, uh, you know, get that done early so you have time to have a um, a teacher or uh, somebody else review that and give feedback before it's submitted. Of course, not to write it, but just to give feedback and critique. Um, and so I think, you know, that's really the key. In terms of some uh, search engine 
students or uh, websites that you can search for scholarships. Uh, fastweb.com is one, scholarships.com. Uh, there's one called niche.com that has some really specific scholarship opportunities. And you obviously want to search and sort by the ones that apply in this situation. But anyway, I think those are kind of generally the ideas behind how you might think about taking advantage of this. And, um, you know, one more example from my family. My wife grew up in a single family uh, home. Her mom made it very clear if she was going to go to college, there just wasn't money there. She was going to need to do it on her own. She was a great student and ended up with over a hundred $150,000 in scholarships, put herself through college the entire way with zero debt. So it is possible, Glenn, and I think just encouraging uh, these uh, friends of yours to uh, get on this early and be diligent about it is really the key to having some success. Thank you. Will the show be archived so I can have her listen to your advice? Absolutely. Yep. It'll be uh, right there at moneywise.org. Uh, you'll be able to get to it probably tomorrow. Thank you, sir. Good day. All right, Glenn. Thanks for calling. God bless you, my friend. Uh, you know, folks, as we think about the cost of college, you know, it really is incumbent upon us as parents to, number one, plan ahead to the extent we can and save early and often. Number two, I think it's really important to be communicating with your kids about the feasibility of them being able to go to college in terms of your financial readiness so that they know going into it, they can go check the cost of attendance, which each college firm furnishes and match that against what mom and dad have communicated is available. So they know what they can pay for. And to the extent there's not money available, what they're going to need to do and earn in the form of scholarships and awards and grants, uh, perhaps the work they'll need to do in the summer or on campus or as a last resort, any borrowing they'll need to do. So really critical that uh, you have those conversations early. But I think to this conversation around scholarships, tons of opportunity out there. You just need to stay on top of it. To Fort Myers, uh, let's see, Tisha, thank you for calling. Go right ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. So my question is, with the Christian Credit Care Counseling, I've actually contacted them, but as like all things except for Christ, I haven't followed through yet. <laughs> but um, when when you say that you close your accounts, does that affect your credit score? That's, yeah. I didn't Typically, work for 18 years, so now okay. I'm working paycheck to paycheck. When I started working, I got overwhelmed with all these offers, and I took them because I've not, yeah. I didn't work for 18 years, so I never had anything, you know, and yes. I have about $8,000 worth of credit cards. Okay, very good. Uh, yes, could it lower your score? It uh, most uh, often does, but it's only temporary. Uh, the biggest factor is um, what's called credit utilization, uh, because if you take an account out of the mix, it makes the available credit lower, uh, and then any balance you have, balances you have are a higher percentage of that available limit. But, you know, I think the key here, Tisha, is the goal is getting out of debt. So any minor declines in your credit score, especially ones that are temporary. Uh, you know, what far outweighs that is your ability to get out of debt once and for all and, uh, you know, not get back in in the future. And I think the key is, you know, for you, unless you're, you know, going to buy a, a car in the next six months or you're buying a house in the next six months, 
I would hope you're not out looking for more credit. And so these temporary declines that, again, won't be significant, but uh, on your credit score really don't affect you at all. Uh, and it helps you pursue this ultimate goal, which is I want to be rid of this credit card debt forever. Um, so I think the uh, the benefit far outweighs any uh, any temporary decline you might experience. Okay. All right. That was my right. question. Very good, Tisha. <laughs> Thank you, Thank so you for calling. God bless you. Uh, to Oklahoma, Amy, you're next on the program. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, um, I borrowed money from my DSP, so my question is, does it affect my investment? Well, it does in the sense that, uh, you know, it's the opportunity cost. Um, you know, when you take a loan from your TSP, uh, the interest rate you'll pay yourself is likely less than what you could have earned if you left it in the account. So it means your money will grow at a slower rate. So it's not compounding like it would be in there. And although this may seem unlikely, uh, you know, if you were to separate from the, uh, the company or, um, you know, if you work for the government from the government, then you would have to pay it back. Uh, or it would all be taxable to you. So I'm not a big fan of borrowing from retirement accounts. If anything, I would say temporarily dial back your new contributions and redirect that toward another priority like you know, rebuilding your emergency fund or paying down credit card debt. I would try to stay away from borrowing from that TSP. Okay. Okay. Thank right. you. You are welcome. We appreciate your call today very, very much. And uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the program. We have covered a lot of ground, it seems, and that's always the goal. My thanks to our amazing team today, including Deb Solomon, Amy Rios, Jim Henry, and Gabby T. I'm Rob West. I'll be back again next time and hope you will, too, for the next edition of Money Wise. Money Wise is provided by Money Wise Media and listeners like you.